Welcome to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast, where we explore popular practices, songs, and ideas in the modern church world in the light of Sola Scriptura and Toto Scriptura. I'm Cody Fields, president of Westminster Effects. Go buy stuff for your guitar at westminstereffects.com, and you can join the discussion in the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge on Facebook. Share the show. Share the freaking show, people. Go copy link. Post it onto Facebook and say, hey, I enjoyed this episode. Or, alternatively, you can say, these guys are idiots and you shouldn't listen to them. But here's the link anyway, in case you want to torture yourself. <laughs> that was rather intense. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, you got you to gotta keep them on their toes every now and then. Uh, we don't have Luther and John via the interwebs this week, but you hear them in person we have. Hey everybody, it's Bradley Cox, pastor at Resurrection Church in Greer, South Carolina. And uh, let's just jump into it. Uh, shall we? Uh, we're in the middle of what we like to call the Easter season here at uh-huh. Resurrection Church, where it's kind of similar to Advent, uh, where in December we take that month, focus on Jesus' first arrival, mm-hmm. and now we're taking basically a month to focus on the crucifixion and then resurrection yep. of Jesus. And so what are we doing with that? We didn't do anything special this year in terms of uh, deviating from our normal path of going through a book of the Bible. Like this year with Christmas, we we did things in Isaiah, yep. which was good. It was harder for you. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. Because <laughs> there was a lot of research involved, uh, a lot of complicated texts that you had to, that you, no, not that you had to preach through that you yourself decided to preach through that's the truth <laughs> that's all on you that's the truth uh but what are we doing this year with easter uh, well i mean you i think you defined what we call easter season pretty well um it and for those that you know maybe are trying to get their heads around what that means it you know i it, it's not there's nothing magical about it. There, there's nothing in, in Scripture that commands that we do this or that around Easter or even Advent. Right. But um, Or that the Christian even celebrates Easter on that particular day. That's right. That's right. We're, we're not talking about you know uh, explicit commands that we're to follow. We're, we're, we're talking about something that we felt like was really good for our church. You know, yeah. I am... I am not opposed to the observance of Lent, like the full observance beginning with Ash Wednesday all the way through to uh, Easter Sunday and beyond. Um, And and there's there's been basically a, hey, you can do this and this would be a good thing, but there has been literally zero pressure to do it. That's exactly right. But we just felt like we didn't want the, the time of year where the resurrection, death, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is typically emphasized in the church to just be on one or two Sundays. Mm-hmm. We wanted to expand that, you know, for the benefit of our people, um, to to reflect more um, on what Christ accomplished and and what it means, and and uh, rehearse that. So what we did is we said, let's just take kind of the structure of Advent and apply it to Easter. Advent's typically four weeks, uh, you know, prior to Christmas observance. Let's take four to five weeks uh, um, leading up to Easter Sunday and especially emphasize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we've done that in the past, you know, we'll typically break from whatever book we're studying uh, through and 
still do expository teaching, but perhaps in a, you know, if we're teaching through the Psalms, for example, we might would have broke with that and gone into one of the gospel narratives around the resurrection. Yeah. Well, it just so happens that we, two, a little better than two years ago, we started a study through the gospel of Luke. And as we, you know, like you said, we, we, we broke that study two different Advent seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, two years ago, we broke at Advent and studied through the book of Ruth during Christmas. And then this past year, we were in Isaiah. And we've typically done that at Easter's that we would break and, and teach through, like I said, something related to the resurrection. Well, air quotes, it just so happened this year we were looking at where we were in Luke's gospel. I went through and just plotted out the remaining text in Luke, and lo and behold, on Easter Sunday, we were going to land at Luke 24, verse 1, but on the first day of the week, <laughs> right? It, yeah. it, it, it was just amazing, and I, as a church body, we have really relished that, that just yeah. the timing of the Lord as we finish the gospel of Luke, it, it, it's falling right at uh, Easter season for us. And so Easter Sunday will be Luke 24, verse 1, and we'll finish Luke, I think, two Sundays after Easter. Um, and so we're going to actually get to extend that Easter season beyond Easter Sunday. Yeah, which is, that's a lot of fun to think about, oh, right? Is you just keep going with the same theme. Like the the week or so after is going to be uh, the road to Emmaus. Yep. So, oh look, he's still resurrected. <laughs> you you don't just stop emphasizing it there yep. at the fact that he was resurrected. It's he's still resurrected, and uh, like in the book of Acts, which we're not. You haven't indicated that we're going through Acts next. Uh, <laughs> but you know, in chapter one, it's this is what Jesus started to do. That's right. And he's still doing stuff. That's right. And with this pattern that we have, we get to emphasize that. There's still things that he's up to. He's expanding his kingdom yep. and such. Hashtag that post. Well, I'm actually wearing my shirt today. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, what's, what, what's really interesting, too, is that um, um, we, the elders met on Monday, and, and we were looking ahead to Good Friday and Easter. And your, your dad is actually teaching this coming Sunday and mm-hmm. he's, I, I left off, uh, this past Sunday, right at Jesus telling one of the thieves today, you'll be with me in paradise. And your dad's going to take us through him being buried and the Sabbath rest after mm-hmm. his burial. And there's just this amazing pause there that we're actually going to live in that pause for almost two weeks. Mm-hmm. Good Friday we will consider we're going to be in Romans 5 with uh what I'm calling a splash of 1 Corinthians 15. So Romans 5 is you know Paul's basically saying there's only two kinds of life. In Adam mm-hmm. all die cuz in Adam all sin, but in Christ if the one man's sin brought about death, how much more will the one man's sacrifice bring about life and righteousness? So we're going to live in that, but then at the end of Good Friday we're going to end with 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead aren't raised, all of this is for naught. Mm-hmm. So yep. we're, essentially, when your dad brings us to that Sabbath rest after, at his burial, we're going to extend that into Good Friday. And then actually on Easter Sunday, I'm not getting to the road to, 
Emmaus on Easter Sunday. We're actually not even going to see Jesus in Luke on Easter Sunday. What we're going to see is the tombs empty. Right. right. We're going to see the, the, the women encounter the angels and go back and tell the apostles, all of whom, except for Peter, and then if you go to John's Gospel, John as well, considered it to be an idle tale. Mm-hmm. Like, this is foolishness. Yep. And so Easter Sunday for us is really going to be like like the Sunday before Palm Sunday and Good Friday are going to be if he doesn't raise, this is all for naught. But mm-hmm. Easter Sunday is going to be if he is raised, what would that mean? And then we're going to actually get to go further with that the two Sundays after Easter with the road to Emmaus and then eventually the ascension. Yeah, we have this interesting pattern here for Good Friday. A lot of people will kind of back up the truck of Easter into Good Friday, which yes. which isn't a bad thing to do. Not terrible. Uh, but typically what we do is we let you sit in that, mm-hmm. in that heaviness. Like, mm-hmm. he's dead, and he's really dead. And all day Saturday, they're dealing with the fact that he's dead. Right. And they don't understand that, He's about to not be dead, <laughs> and he's not just mostly dead. Even though, the, even though he told them, right in Luke eighteen, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. And what was it in? Uh, and, then, in and then Luke says, but this was kept hidden from them; they did yeah. not understand it. But then the angels tell the women at the tomb in Luke twenty four. Mm-hmm. Remember what he said, right? <laughs> and then they remember, right? Or even uh, I don't remember which. Is it John, maybe, where he says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days? Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't, <laughs> like, it was hidden from them, but it's not like he wasn't telling them repeatedly oh, right. about this. But they weren't anticipating a resurrection. Right. That, that, that to me, is startling in the narrative, it's, and it's in all four Gospels. They were not anticipating that he would rise, and so that Sabbath was a loud silence. Right after right. all the chaos of Good Friday, it was just this loud silence that I think personally, it's it's good and right and healthy for Christians to pause right there between his burial and resurrection, and mm-hmm. not just rush to the empty tomb. Yeah, because it for Paul to be inspired to write those words, if he's not raised, we're to be pitied most of all. Mm-hmm. So to feel that pause, I think is is good and healthy for us spiritually. And, and that's what we're going to do really beginning this Sunday all the way through Good Friday and even a little bit on Easter Sunday because we'll see the ent- empty tomb, but we won't actually see him until the Sunday after Easter in Luke, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. I think, really cool. It, one of the good things about this particular Easter season is we've kind of slowed down. Slowed down? S- slowed down. I can't talk. Slowed down. Slowed down. I like that. Let's make that a That's, new word. That has to be something I've picked up from one of our <laughs> fellow Southerners. Oh, <laughs> but we've really slowed down and kind of stared the horror of this in the face this year. Mm-hmm. Like, seriously, how messed up the cruci- well, all of the events leading up to the crucifixion were. The kangaroo court, uh, the torture, the beatings, the scourging. Um, and then... Now he's going to be buried, and there's, like, blood that hasn't quite dried yet. Yeah. You know? Uh, there's probably bits of skin hanging down from him being scourged. Oh, yeah. And stuff like that. Um, 
this was a brutal event. Um, and, and you've really brought that out. Uh, yes, not yesterday, two days ago, as we record on Sunday, is this wasn't pretty. This wasn't like the Jesus movie where, you know, <laughs> they get they get this little whip and, yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. And then, like, uh, like carpentry nails. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and there's, like, a little trickle of blood, and that's about it. No, like, this was R-rated yeah. all the way through. Uh, with our criticisms of the Passion of the Christ, uh, you know, noted because of Catholic mysticism and stuff like that. Right. They did a really good job of of picturing just how terrible that was. Yeah, and you know, I said this on Sunday. The Gospels, <clears throat> all four of them, maintain a sense of decorum about the brutality of it. Um, that mm-hmm. we really, the Gospels do not describe the horrors of flogging. Mm-hmm. It, they do not describe the horrors of crucifixion. Nowhere in Scripture are we do we read about the fact that people who were crucified suffocated to death. Mm-hmm. You didn't even have to be nailed to a cross to die. You right. could be tied up there with ropes, and eventually you're going to die because you can't breathe hanging like that. Right. The nails only added, other than blood loss, the nails just added to the excruciating pain of trying to get a breath. And, and there's some sense of assuming that they know what's going on, too. Well, and, and a- Apart from the decorum, there's all, you know, like... When Luke drops Pilate's name, he doesn't say, "All right, he was the governor of Judea." It's you know we know Pilate. That's right. It's, it, it's like if he had said Kamala Harris to us, yeah. we know who he's talking about, and then we kind of chuckle under our breath about how terrible a politician she is. And anyway, <laughs> <laughs> rabbit just ran through here. Yeah, you're um, welcome. But you know, like you're you're right to say that in one sense, reading a gospel, we're listening to one side of a phone conversation. Because there are assumed things that, you know, Luke assumes Theophilus knows the horror of flogging and yeah. crucifixion and the, the level of physical exhaustion Jesus would have been experiencing by the time he's actually carrying his cross to the place of execution. Yep. Um, but what's fascinating to me, and, and this is what I think has been so, uh, what's the word? I don't want to just say moving, but... Poignant. Weighty and poignant is Luke is perhaps more so than any of the other four gospels is letting us watch this happen through the eyes of others who were there. Right. You know, we get a glimpse of what Pilate is seeing. We get a glimpse of what Simon of Serene experienced when he picked up the cross. We get a, a glimpse of, you know, these women are weeping and wailing and Jesus turns to address them. Um, and, that that to me is what Luke seems to have been inspired to um, record for us was again not the gory details as it were of yeah. the physical torture but how it is that Jesus himself is actually living and walking through this and that Sunday for me personally I, I don't I don't know about the rest of the congregation maybe you can speak to this but Sunday for me personally was so powerful because. I'm watching Jesus at the at a level of physical exhaustion that I can't fathom be attentive to mm-hmm. women who are weeping and wailing. I, I, I see him hanging on the cross, asking the Father to forgive those who hung him up there for doing so. I see him saving a one of the thieves who were hung beside him, uh, 
in, in his dying moments. And I'm just in awe of that because I, I've said to my church a couple of times this Easter season, the more tired I get, the more selfish I become. And, and I've seen that recently. <laughs> no, no, you have. You absolutely <laughs> on that, have. On that bike ride when we were all angry, you were really mad. I was ticked. And I mean, it was, we were doing a 68-mile bike ride with more climbing than I've ever even oh thought gosh. about doing. And You I, were so mad, and it was hilarious. I was so mad. <laughs> But but you know what? I think we all experience that to one degree or another. Is oh, yeah. That when we're tired, when we're suffering, we tend to get focused more on us. And yes. Jesus does the exact opposite. Yep. And that's so startling to me to see him do that, not only to keep his mouth shut in the kangaroo court, mm-hmm. not, not to defend himself or try to prove himself or anything like that. He just keeps his mouth shut. And then as he... He's carrying the cross and, and, and crucified. He's serving, he's saving, and he's attending to others. And that is just, I mean, that's who our Savior is. And, that, and I think if you rush past that to the empty tomb, mm-hmm. even yeah. though it's weighty, even though it's heavy, even though it's hard to gaze at, it's still so precious to see this is who our Savior is. Yeah. Well, dang, how do I transition from that? Um, we did get an Inquisition question that will import into this to this portion because we have talked about this some here at Res. Uh, from Jennifer Little, she was listening to, she thinks, if she remembers correctly, Alistair Begg, uh, and he compared Judas and Pilate. She hasn't Googled her research, but she was curious on our take on those two, maybe a compare and contrast, their internal torture or thought processes, and their importance and necessity. That's a good thing to note. The ne- their necessity to the biblical story. Yeah. Uh, so with Judas, I mean, one of the uh, fun historical things is there's pretty good scholarly work to indicate that he was part of a, a radical Jewish nationalist sect. Uh, called the Sicarii, which is how we get Iscariot. Uh, a lot of cloak and dagger type of stuff, a lot yep. of assassinations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, almost think like Hezbollah, but 2,000 yep. years ago. Yep, yep. And there, apart from his greed, which, yes, he was greedy, uh, there was also probably him trying to motivate Jesus to, hey, let's start this revolution already. Right. When are we going to make this happen? And so him betraying Jesus, uh, he may have thought and probably did think, oh, he realizes this is serious now. Let's get to work and let's lop some heads. Yeah, yeah. I think that was Judas's motivation. I mean, I, 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 I talked about this at length and I, you know, I'll just do the short version is that I think it would be wrong to conclude that Satan himself um, – his motivation in the passion of Christ is to get Jesus dead as quickly as possible. Right. I think Satan, he's not omniscient, but he is smart enough to know that if Jesus dying is part of the father's plan, that's not going to go well for mm-hmm. me. And he does like he, <laughs> the, the demons believe in God and shudder. Yeah. Satan knows what's in, what's been prophesied in the old Testament already. Yeah. Well, even at Jesus's temptation, he, one of the temptations, Satan tries to get Jesus to circumvent the whole process. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms of this earth. You don't right. have to go through all of this. And then when Jesus predicts his death, 
Peter rebukes Jesus and says, never, Lord, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. So I I don't think, I think Satan is trying to cause chaos. He's trying to um, um, sabotage the plan as much as he possibly can. And so when Satan finds a willing partner in Judas, then I think I, I think it would be wrong for us to conclude that what the reason Judas betrays Jesus is that he wants Jesus dead. Right. I think he is, and you know, you might have already said this. I think he's trying to poke the bear. Mm-hmm. I think he's trying mm-hmm. to get Jesus to take up swords and fight. And you know, I even went so far as, and I I'm willing to admit there's a bit of speculation on my part here. Why sure. did Judas kiss Jesus? Why was that the sign of betrayal? Well, it was a common greeting of the day, so it could be nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. But I argued that if Judas was merely motivated by greed, let's say, he got the 30 pieces of silver, which really isn't enough to retire on. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, Jesus is a familiar figure. He's been in town all week leading up to this teaching in the public square. He could have just said, look, he's going to be on the Mount of Olives. He does that every, every night. That's where he's staying. Go there, and he could have skipped town with his money. But he, instead, he shows up with the posse and kisses Jesus. And I thought about Psalm 2. Yep. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. I wonder if that wasn't Judas's way of saying to Jesus, look, don't be mad at me, but you, it's not right for you to die. You need to fight. Right. And when Peter pulls out the sword and chops the dude's ear off, I wonder if Judas wasn't thinking to himself, yes. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> But Jesus obviously, you know, stops the violence immediately. So Judas has an agenda. Mm-hmm. And his agenda, this is what's so fascinating. His agenda is anti the purposes of God. Right. And yet, he's absolutely serving the purposes of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like right? Jesus prays in John 17, you know, all mine are yours. And I haven't lost one of them except, and then he, he makes reference to Judas. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what was determined. Yes. This is, this is to fulfill what is written. Judas is part of the plan, even though by his own reckoning and motivation, he's working against the mm. plan. And Peter's uh, prayer in Acts of this is all what God predestined to take place. Exactly. So what about Pilate? Yep. Pilate is in no way, in, in, in terms of his thinking and motivation, in line with the purposes of God. Right. Um, he, he, his one, you know, I said on the Sunday I taught about this, that you know, Pilate is JV squad in the Roman Empire. He is not <laughs> this larger-than-life figure. He's, he's the bureaucratic equivalent of a maintenance man. And, Ro- you, you couldn't even call him, like, we would call him a governor, but you couldn't even equate him to, like, a United States governor where, you know, during the COVID thing, for instance, uh, Henry McMaster you know, said, no, we're not going to do certain things after this amount of time, or Ron DeSantis or whatever, and they both caught flack for it, even from Trump, whereas with but Trump, this, Trump can't do a thing to him. Right, exactly, where with this, Rome really has all the power, and he's just kind of the janitor. That's exactly right. He's the janitor over Jerusalem, and his one job is to keep the peace. And Pilate took that very seriously, it, to keep the peace at all costs, even if it meant condemning and killing Jews that had not 
you know, gone through due process. Yep. And, and that's ironically eventually what got him fired by Rome. So he, when Jesus is brought to him, Pilate is literally between a rock and a hard place. Yep. Yep. If, if, he, if he doesn't give them what they want, a mob and a riot could ensue, which is going to get him in trouble with Rome. It might get him killed. It might get him killed. And if he condemns Jesus to die, he still might get in trouble with Rome and or killed mm-hmm. because he has yet again condemned unjustly a person to die, mm-hmm. which is why I think he punts and sends him to Herod. But It, it really was an act of political cowardice. Exactly. But while at the same time you can see, oh, yeah, that wasn't an easy decision, but it was still cowardice. It's still cowardice. And here again, <clears throat> Pilate's only thinking about how do I squash this cockroach of a problem without losing <laughs> my job or my head? That is his motivation. And yet, in the narrative, three different times in Luke 23, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Yep. And I would argue, and I think I can back this up from Scripture, that is not merely Pilate's voice. Right. He is not working and he's not motivated by the purposes of God, and yet he's absolutely serving the purposes of God to declare Jesus to be the spotless lamb. Right. Before, you know, I, I said this the Sunday I taught this as well. In the creeds, we do not say Jesus suffered under Caiaphas mm-hmm. or Annas. Mm-hmm. We say he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate plays a huge role, like Judas, in the death of Jesus. And I think Pilate's role is, because we, we say in the creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. I think Pilate's role is to declare, God has, himself has examined Jesus and declared him to be spotless. Mm-hmm. And then the guilt of us all is laid on him. Right. And I think Pilate was the one that God chose to be his mouthpiece. The same voice that was heard from the heavens when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism this is my son, and you you are my son, and you I am well pleased. I think that same voice was speaking through the agency of a wicked procurator, Pilate, to say, behold the spotless lamb of God, and, and then he's condemned. After Pilate says that three times, he's condemned. The guilt of us all is laid on him. So how I would compare Judas and Pilate, two guys that are... They are not saved. They are not born again. Mm-hmm. Their motivations are not in line with the purposes of God, and yet God himself has sovereignly willed, despite their efforts to sabotage the deal, they absolutely, totally serve God's ultimate purpose for Jesus to bear the sin, to bear the weight of guilt for our sin. Mm-hmm. in his death and in his suffering, and it's just fascinating. It, it's like um, Isaiah 10. Yeah, Stephen was walking in and out of the woods back there, and I kept ex- expecting to see him with a dead groundhog again. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but in Isaiah 10, God tells Israel, I'm sending Assyria to judge you, and I am wielding them like a hammer. Yeah. And when I'm done with them, I'm going to turn around and judge them for the atrocities that they commit on you. Yeah. Well, but Prov- you, you have to you have to have categories in your mind for that. You do, uh, Proverbs 21, I think it is, where it says the king's heart is a stream of water and God wields it wherever he wills. Yep. 
So, so you you literally have to look at Pilate and go, he's totally in God's hands. Yeah. He's not a robot. He has his motivations. He's doing what he would, you know, normally do in any other situation. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep the peace. Don't want to lose my job. Don't want to lose my head. And yet, without knowing it, without even being conscious of it, I think he serves as God's mouthpiece. You know, the the priestly authority in Jerusalem, which is they are the ones that are charged with the responsibility of declaring a lamb at Passover to be spotless and worthy to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. They are shouting for the lamb of God to be killed. <laughs> because they yeah. think they think he needs to die. Right. They know he's not guilty of a crime, but he's in the way. He needs to die. And they too are serving the purposes of God. Mm-hmm. They're they're calling for his death, and yet Pilate's the one who's declaring, Yep, he's innocent. You have, you have an enormous collision of all of these like Old Testament shadows, the types and shadows, and then you have all of those running up against God's sovereignty. Yeah. And, and yet, when Luke you really says, boil it down, it's, it's insane. Luke says right before Jesus uh, is, is or right when Jesus is condemned, it says that Pilate turned him over to their will. Mm-hmm which is a fascinating statement. Yeah. They are doing exactly what they want to do. Right. They're not robots. God is not God hasn't turned anybody into robots. He just uses people's wicked desires for his good purpose. Mhm. And that is the thing that is it, it can be really hard to stomach and get your head around. Pi, you know, John Piper says you have to have a category for the God who will sin sinlessly. Yep. And and that's exactly what happens in the death of Christ. There's no way around it. Yeah, Genesis 50, when Joseph is talking to his brothers, what you meant for evil, it's not God used it for good. It's he God intended it, meant it for good. God meant their really atrocious sin, <laughs> selling a brother into slavery, lying to their dad for years about the fact. Well, with the story that he had been killed by a lion or whatever it was. Was it a lion? That they said, I think so. Oh. Uh, that he had been killed, yep. and then, but it's not that God reacted to it. God nope. planned that sin without sinning Himself. And, and and for Jesus to pray on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> come on, man. I mean, this is the plan, right? Yeah. This is the this is the plan is for him to die. And it's exactly what he's doing. The Father's plan is being fulfilled down to the smallest detail. And yet Jesus says, this is the way I interpret his prayer, don't hold this sin against them. Mm-hmm. And that would include you know, the priests and scribes, I think, as well as the soldiers and Pilate who condemned him. I don't think that's a blanket prayer for generic salvific mercy, but it's literally no. Jesus saying, don't hold this sin against them. Yeah. So... There you have it. That's how our Easter season has been shaping up at our church. Shall we move on to the Inquisition? Yes. And this is the Inquisition, where you ask us questions, we answer them on the fly, which really isn't all that different from the rest of the show anyway. But you can submit those questions via a weekly post, which I make on Mondays in the Westminster Effects doxology podcast lounge and as is tradition we start with brian morris (laughs) it's a pretty funny question honestly he says why does it seem like a majority of church musicians hate the music their church plays 
even when they even when they simp for big p dub are you familiar with this slang term simp no i'm not i know what p dub means so so basically simping is when uh a guy is uh desperate to win the affections of a girl and, and basically goes way above and beyond what he should be going. Yeah. And so simping for big P dub, <laughs> as he calls it, big worship. He says he was in a, we'll leave the Facebook group nameless yesterday and saw a post where people were complaining about the Bethel and Hillsong formula, hymns, Tomlin, and one dude called churches singing, blessed be your name, a red flag. <laughs> I guess because it's too old and not relevant or whatever. And, I can, I would bet my entire life savings that that guy wears black skinny jeans and a denim jacket. <laughs> <laughs> he says, the obvious answer is that too many churches musicians seem to need to hear the music wasn't for you, but also we often think that we are above the music. But finally, there is legitimate critique to be had in a lot of church music. So what's the happy medium? Oh man, I don't know. I, here's here's what i see at least at least here uh what we've been shooting for is content first i i I was gonna say that yes well good we're on the same page keep going (laughs) uh we're we're shooting for content and then the genre or the style or even the complexity follows yep that's secondary and so there, we have room for songs that require a crap load of gain on the guitar. Yeah. Like like when we played "Is He Worthy," <laughs> you, you, you told you told my wife that you could tell she was running sound because holy crap, my guitar came right but on through. I, I just want our 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 podcast audience to know: "Is He Worthy?" went full metal this past Sunday at Res Church. Like my- you go to our listen, just go to our Facebook page. I'm telling you, yeah. Go to yeah. our Facebook page. It's the it's the third song we sing after we take communion. Uh, you can watch the service. Uh, particularly, I think we streamed both services on Sunday for some mm-hmm. reason. So look at the second one and get past communion. Is he worthy to the point where there's that build yep. to the he is, he is, he is. Yep. Listen to that build. It is like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your wife had you up so loud. Yes, it sir. was hilarious. The, uh, so for those who are wondering, my signal chain went PRSCE24 with a Seymour Duncan JB in the bridge, and then Edwards Overdrive 1689 and the Physician. So I had three overdrive pedals on. I don't have a clue what all that means, yeah. but I just know. I had a lot of gain. <laughs> I know I wanted to get in a power stance on e- Is yes, He Worthy? Sir. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, we have stuff like that, and then we had uh, what was? Uh, I just got to go back and look at the set list. Well, we started well, with uh, the cut was not removed, right? And that was a little bit more medium gain for me. Yeah. Uh, but then we did sing to Jesus, which is a very backed off song, yeah. es- especially the recording. Yeah. And so eventually, I turn on an overdrive for like the last chorus. Yeah. But everything before that is just swells, for me, at least. Yep, yep. And so we have room for big songs, backed-off, stripped-down songs, complicated songs, uh, and then we have songs that follow the typical verse-chorus, verse-chorus, bridge-chorus-end yeah. kind of thing. And we just have room for that, 
but I think it's really the content that drives everything, which is why we don't complain about a whole lot of songs these days. I, I think that's the key is that, you know, church music has been so contentious for so long. I mean, like I, I, I've been at this since the, you know, mid to late nineties. Right. And it's just everywhere we went, um, whether we were touring or whether I was working in a local church, it, it, it was contentious, you know, cause people have such strong opinions about it. Right. And I think the, I'm not saying it alleviates all of it. You're still going to have, you know, preferences as it relates to genre and style and tone and all that stuff. But if you focus on the content and the content, what to me, it, it's not just focusing on content, but it's content for the benefit of the people you're serving. Yes. And I think that our worship team does a really good job of picking songs that that serve our body well where we are. You know, right. just like I think Stephen has done such a good job of picking songs for Easter season. It's like every mm-hmm. week I'm going, man, this song is perfect. It's perfect for us. It's perfect for where we're at, where we're what we're studying in scripture. All of that. So, I don't know. That's about the only piece of advice I would give is what yeah. you said: is focus on the content and the musicians have to. The musicians have to, regardless of the context, really. You you have to be mindful of the audience, and you have to be mindful mm-hmm. of the people you're serving. Even yep. in a secular context, you have to be mindful of that to a certain degree. Yeah, you know. Um, so. I don't know. Christian art has a transcendent um, focus, right? You know, yeah. it's the glory of God and the joy of His people, and that has to that has to supersede any sort of you know musical preference if, you might have. When you're when you're singing about uh, the cup not being removed, but your sin was removed, that's an entirely different focus than seeing your victory. Yeah. Or yeah. or you know this is how I fight my battles kind of thing. Like those two focuses are entirely, I think in terms of a worship context, I think they're at odds with each other. I do too. And and Steven said this yesterday, we were talking about something. He, he referred to songs like that as worship candy. There, there, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think if you've got a church that's steeped in worship candy, it's just leaving you more and more and more room for there to be battles over preference and style. And, yep. and whereas if the content is rich and deep, the focus more easily shifts to that rather than what tone I would prefer if, or if, whatever. If you can show up on the Lord's Day and expect a steak dinner every week, as opposed to, I'm going to get nothing but cotton candy, Yeah. Like the, the steak is going to win out all the time once you acquire that taste for it and you know if you if you if you come with a song like the cut was not removed such a deep rich lyrical you know song there and the recording for the record the recording that we had on planning center was kind of lame <laughs> well, that, com- that's where i, I was going to go is yeah. i think if you focus there then you can make room within reason for people to be creatively expressive. I mean, like it did not take away anything from our service for Kristen to to bump you and and that build in Izzy Worthy to mm-hmm. sound more like almost felt like everybody in the church was like, "Let's go!" You're know? <laughs> gonna open up a circle pit. <laughs> you know, and that's that's not that's not a song where you typically like 
you know, ready to run through a wall or something. Right. I was like, let's go. <laughs> That's awesome. I wouldn't say we would do that that way every week, but I, I thought that was just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, next question from Ryan Eigel. Uh, this this question is adjacent to um, the podcast series that I've been doing with Corey Truax. The, okay. The, as I abbreviate it, Culture with Corey and Cody podcast, or CCCP, because I have a dark sense of humor, and that was the Cyrillic abbreviation for the Soviet <laughs> Union. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Ryan. In case y'all don't know, everything's layered with Cody. Yeah, it's There's ridiculous. There's never, never anything that's in the shallow end of the no, pool. No, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> so Ryan Eigel asks, why are modern evangelicals often so opposed to the death penalty, even in very clear-cut cases of rape and murder? And he cites Genesis 9-6 as a divine command concerning the proper punishment for murderers. Um... I'll give you my take on why. Yeah. Um, I think some, you know, we have to we have to acknowledge. I think right in in discussions and debates like this, there's a spectrum of reasonableness. Sure. And 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 there are some people that are just flat unreasonable in their arguments on both sides. Yes. Uh, so if we were to live in the spectrum of reason. You know, a, a reasonable consideration. I think some genuine believers struggle to reconcile um, our emphasis on the sanctity of life with being pro-death penalty. Right. Uh, and I'm not saying that I agree with that, that, that I think those are apples to apples, but I do have some level of empathy about that consideration. Sure. Is that we're going to laud pro-life and and the sanctity of life and even even into things like where uh if, if we might want to talk about systemic racism if that's a thing and, and and other things and and then take someone who has yes committed a heinous crime and determine that we have the right to kill them mm -hmm. as a result of that i i have compassion for that argument even if i disagree with it right and 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 my disagreement would be rooted in scripture, not in my opinion, but I, I, I'm at least okay with saying, you know what? I get where you're coming from. With and, that. and, and from my end, like I have e the, the position that I disagree with that I have the most compassion for on that side is our justice system is so jacked up that I don't trust it. Exactly. So like, I get that. Yeah. I totally get where you're coming from, even if I disagree. And and you know really for all intents and purposes here in these in the states I mean you know somebody gets you know sentenced to death when are they going to die yeah. like I have a pastor friend of mine uh, who pastor's not that far from here both his parents were murdered by his sister's boyfriend mm. beat to death with a baseball bat oh my goodness the guy's been on death row for twenty years. Mm -hmm. And he's been scheduled. His execution has been scheduled no less than six times. And it keeps getting delayed because South Carolina can't get lethal injection drugs. Mm -hmm. And the electric chair is determined to be cruel and unusual. And now South Carolina is trying to pass laws to have a firing squad again. It's just a convoluted mess. One of the Dakotas just reinstated the firing squad, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think so. But South Carolina can't. 
I hope I don't sound like I'm being cavalier about this, but they can't get their act together on actually, um, you know, following through yep. with this stuff. And so that to me even gives me more compassion for those that say, we really don't have any business doing this. Um, even though I do think scripture not only um, allows for governments to um, use the death penalty, but even commands it right. in certain cases. Absolutely. So I, 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 I get the tension with that, and I'm, I'm just so thankful that I am not in the position to have to make decisions about it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. At the same time, it's I think there's also in the evangelical world uh, – uh, kind of an impulse to err on the side of God is loveism, maybe. Yeah, that's not a reason. That's not a reason to. I, I I don't respect that opinion. I don't respect that opinion either. That's why I said I I in the spectrum of reason, where we where there's acknowledgement of our flaws, the brokenness of our justice system, um, the inadequacies of of our current society to be able to actually follow through with the death penalty mm-hmm. in a reasonable way, in a humane way. Uh, I, I am not for people like I, like how far do you go with it? Right. Like, like the, does, you know, the Bible though it commands the death penalty in certain cases, it doesn't command how you kill somebody. Right. Right. So should we bring back crucifixion? Right. And that's, and that's logging. That's where, uh, particularly on this, I'm going to send this link to you right now if you want to listen to it, but yep. listen, it's in the same feed uh, I, I've also determined that I'm going to, uh, title all of them when I post them on the feed, uh, Monty Python references in the title. So this, <laughs> this one is called come see the violence inherent in the system. Yep. Um, and we talk about this a lot, but it, you know, it's a general equity thing of, you know, respecting the Imago day. So you want it to be a humane way to kill someone. So even stoning would have taken somebody out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, electrocution takes someone out pretty quick. Uh, lethal injection even, uh, what you're not trying to do is torture someone to death. What you're doing is purging the evil from among you Yeah. for things that uh, so violate the image of God in people like man-stealing, kidnapping, or murder, or rape, or whatever. Um, that's, that's what we're trying to do. And one of the big points that I make in that uh, episode is the government's responsibility is to bear the sword and to wield the sword. It is not to correct people, which is where we get it wrong right now with the Department of Corrections. Uh, and we call prisons penitentiaries, yeah. which is where they are penitent. That's that's not the government's job. That's the church's job is to help them in their penitence. Which again, like I think... I think there are universal truths that govern this, not the least of which is that God is sovereign, and he's sovereign over governmental authorities. He's sovereign over the people that are put in positions of power. And so I have great confidence that whatever happens with the justice system and following through with the death penalty, that God's sovereign over it. Yes. But I think that all the more it should compel us to pray for our leaders, regardless of what country you live in, that they would pray that they would be uh, God honoring and 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 even biblical, despite the fact that they may not be believers yeah. in the way that they execute justice. But I think we have to acknowledge that the the, the flaws in the system and and the 
the discrepancies that exist, not the least of which is what you're saying, is that the church is supposed to be, by God's design, mm-hmm. it's not by American design. Right. That's not the way right. the American society is, is structured, which is, we, we could go down a whole nother rabbit trail about <laughs> the God and country stuff. Yeah. But it's not the way America's designed, but the way the way God's word structures things is that the church is handling corrections and rebukes and repentance and you know all of that and the government's bearing the sword Mm -hmm. and which is purposeful in that the church is not meant to bear the sword right we are not to be the ones executing people yep we're to be the ones who are correcting people and holding people accountable and when that's not possible and evil remains the government bears the sword Mm mm-hmm that and and you know that's just that doesn't work well in our American society. <laughs> nope, not at all. And so I that's why I I will give ear to people who have a reasonable distaste for the death penalty in countries like the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, last question from Tim Webb. Ooh, we could turn this. Uh, I say this every week. There's always one question that we could turn into an entire episode. Oh. But he asks, how much caring about your church's brand is too much? For context, <laughs> you're going to get irritated at this. <laughs> Don't assume. Uh, you know what happens when you assume is That's it makes right. me look really cool. <laughs> For context, my church sells shirts with our worship team's song lyrics on it and our youth group and young adults group's name on it. They're adamant about calling our series Collections of Conversations and the merch apparel instead of merch. (laughs) They sent out a quote-unquote mood board to the worship team to tell us what their quote-unquote vision is for what people on stage should wear. Everyone is always reposting and tagging church events to get more clicks. Always a lot of lights and smoke during worship. So was I right? (laughs) All right. I'm just laughing at all of that now, and that's 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 bad. Please forgive me, whoever submitted that question. I don't want to make fun of a church, but I just, you know, honestly, when reading that question just made me tired. Yeah, yeah, and church, th- and church I, should not be tiring. I think about all that, and I'm like, that is just, you know, I, I don't know that there's anything inherently wicked about that. Like, you know, if you, like, I, I'm certainly. Everything has a culture you know, yes. about it. There, and, and culture is always shaped by core values. And, and so Res has, does Res have a brand? I would prefer to say we have a culture. Mm-hmm. And we try to reflect that culture in things that are visible to a certain degree. Yeah. But honestly, over the years, I have tried to minimize the amount of attention, resource, and effort that we put into those things because it's exhausting. It's a rabbit hole that you can't go down. Certainly, we want to be mindful of how people appear on stage. Mm -hmm. We certainly want our greeters and our host team to be welcoming and hospitable. Um, And I think that there's merit in our, our website, our podcast, all of those things being windows into what Res Church is about and mm-hmm. what it's like. I, I'm, I'm for that. But that, to me, just sounds like an overemphasis on, and, it, and the question I know is, how much is too much? I, 
That's too much. <laughs> I think that sounds like too much, but I don't know where to, how to help people like that draw the line. Yeah, I, I think the thing that kind of irritated me the most was calling sermon series collections of conversations. You're because that reeks of appealing to the unbelievers' senses more than actually serving your church. I agree with that. Which is what the church is for. I agree with that. And so when when it becomes more about, uh, when I was coaching baseball, we used the term eyewash for, for things that look good, but really there's not really any substance to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if a team, uh, for instance, we go to their field and they've just put up a new scoreboard or whatever but their infield is garbage it's not dragged well the grass isn't cut right all that kind of thing well the scoreboard's eyewash because the rest of this field is trash yeah um and that's what that feels like to me when you have uh you know apparel collections and collections of conversations and vision boards or whatever like how about we just have church (laughs) and quit worrying about making it look like a nightclub well, I, I I'll say this, and I you know people can take it or leave it. <laughs> um, this is going to be fun, I bet. I think we are at the end of the life life cycle of this um, huge push that began I don't know twenty, thirty, forty years ago. Mm-hmm. To make things sound more appealing, sound more relevant, um, you know, you know, get rid of old dusty words and traditional trappings, and let's let's bring in let's let's quit calling them sermons and let's call them talks. Let's quit calling things you know you know, quit calling our churches church a church, and let's call it a you know. It's just a get together, worship center, or or that, yeah, or whatever. Like you know, it's it's not again. It's not that any of those things are bad and wicked in and of themselves. But I do think the end of the life cycle. We're nearing the end of the life cycle mm-hmm. of that stuff. People are tired of it. It's shallow. It has a lot of hype around it. I'm not saying there aren't large churches that focus on those things, but I really think that at least to the people that listen to this podcast, my encouragement to you is. Get rooted, contend for content and substance, yep. not trappings. Yep. If you're focused, it, it, maybe this is my best answer to the question. How much is too much on the brand? When, you're, when the primary emphasis in the conversations around leadership and planning and the administration of the church is focused on trappings rather than substance. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Yes, and you have basically you have, I think, put yourself in a position to eventually run your course where you're going to run out of either energy or influence. One of the two. One of those two tanks is going to get empty if that's where you're placing the majority of your emphasis. I'm I'm pretty convinced. The more I think about things like pastoral and church staff burnout, I think most of it is because of that stuff. I totally agree. Uh, because the less that the less we've emphasized that, uh, the less you've brought up things like sabbaticals. <laughs> <laughs> it's really you know? true, man. And and I tell you, I we can put a bow on this right here. I I just. 
finished a Bible study in Colossians before coming over here, and in Colossians 4, um, I don't think I'm stretching this too far to apply it to this question. Uh, when Paul says, not 4, uh, chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, he says, um, to bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Now, I know he's addressing slaves and their masters, Mm -hmm. but he goes on to say, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So there, verse 23, I think, gives us the the window to, or or the opportunity to take the principle of verse 22 and apply it a little more broadly. Don't work to be people pleasers. Right. Don't 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 let your motivation be eye service, and because when you do, you're not you're you're not only shifting your focus away from fearing the Lord or honoring the Lord and on to people or yourselves or both, but I think you're setting yourself up for burnout. Yep. Because that is a never-ending cycle of pressure and stress that honestly, I lived in for probably the first ten to twelve years of my ministry tenure, and it. If I would have continued down that road, I don't think I'd be sitting here with you today. I yeah. really don't. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Well, on that note, thanks for listening to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast. We'll, uh, I suppose, see you next week. Go love God, love your neighbor, and make some music if you feel like it. <laughs>